Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Church of Corinth. We are in chapter 6. We are more or less wrapping up chapter 6. In point of fact, as I promised yesterday, we will wrap up what I started yesterday, which will have us in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, I will go back and read the preceding verses so we can appreciate the context of chapter 7, verse 1, but we will get into that first. But before we get into that, I did just want to continue to thank all of you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me here on Seeds of Truth, especially those who are tuning in by way of podcasts from the countries of Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Chile, Brazil. I see in Western Europe, I continue to see in Western Europe, Italy, France, Portugal, Spain. I also see Croatia. I want to continue to express my gratitude because I want you to understand that as I see you on the grid from one week to the next, I appreciate you. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedules. And maybe you are listening to this podcast on your way home from work. You could be listening to another podcast. And so I appreciate you hitting seeds of truth and just not listening to what I have to say, but more importantly, what St. Paul has to say, right? Because all I'm doing is at best reflecting into, of course, the message of St. Paul. Now, to you, the listener, you have been asking me questions, and there continues to be this question that I was going to reserve for Thursday, but I just thought, you want to know what? Let's just talk about it once again, and it is that question of interpreting Scripture. Because you're asking me this question out from your journey with me in this epistle. I thought we could just hit the refresh button on some of the things we have already talked about on how we are called to interpret sacred scripture. Sacred scripture itself gives us principles to how to better interpret sacred scripture, right? So we will set aside a good portion of our time potentially this evening on how to better interpret sacred scripture. Now, I know I have already talked about this when we first set out to study the first letter to Corinth, but we would be well served to once again re-engage some of that subject matter that your question is being answered, that we talk about that in the stream of what we have already been talking about. All right, so what I want to do is go back and read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, through, again, chapter 7, verse 1. So if you want to pull out your Bibles, do not be yoked with those who are different with unbelievers? For what partnership do righteousness and lawlessness have? Or fellowship does light have with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live with them and move among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people." Therefore, come forth from them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 
Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Now again, I have already talked about in detail a great number of these verses, especially the quotations from the Old Testament. Now I want to take what I have talked about and pour that into chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. So Paul addresses the Corinthians as what? Beloved, as fellow members of the family of God, right? The reference to these promises points to the biblical passages that I just read, in particularly, my friends, promises that have been fulfilled through Christ Jesus and the bestowal of the Spirit, that all-important promise that He now lives among us. He now moves among us because the gift of the Holy Spirit that He has given us. So, given the community's identity as God's temple and as God's children, Paul sets forth the ethical implication. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit. Essentially, be pure as God is pure. Again, something I talked about yesterday. Note here, my friends, that St. Paul continues to use language associated with worship and sacrifice. In doing so, he is reminding us, he is reminding Christians that we are to extend our worship of God into all the circumstances and dealings of our lives. Has that not been a centerpiece to so much of what I have been talking about here on Seeds of Truth, no matter the subject matter? <laughs> that really lies at the heart of our faith. And how do we do this? Well, we do so in part by repudiating and avoiding anyone or anything that leads to sin. Paul's use of the phrase flesh and spirit signifies that the whole person is affected adversely by sin. Paul then states positively what all Christians are called to do. Make holiness perfect in the fear of God. This, my friends, expresses in a nutshell, in microcosm, what Christian life entails, does it not? We who have been filled with the Holy Spirit are called to continually strive towards growth and holiness. This is the very point that he makes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. This growth involves embodying more and more the character of our Lord, which of course is the very thing the Spirit empowers us to do. And just as St. Paul conducts his ministry in the fear of the Lord, so ought we, my friends, called, who are God's family, to strive for holiness in the fear of God. That is, out of reverence and awe of the one who has called us to be holy, because as Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2 reminds us, he is holy, right? He is entirely holy. There's nothing in God that isn't holy. So when God's holiness invades our soul, Perfect holiness invades our soul. Is this not a beautiful peace that comes to us from St. Paul? And we should never minimize what we talked about yesterday, <laughs> this call we have to get rid of idols. 
it is easy to quickly pass over Paul's warnings about idols in verse 16. So many of us tend to relegate the practice of idolatry to times and places maybe more primitive than our own. Nevertheless, could we not say that idols continue to be as prominent as they ever have been? Those strange idols that go by the names like wealth, prestige, power, success, and pleasure? Are we not all called to ask that question? Is there anything, or more specifically, anyone in my life that I seek more than I seek to love and serve God? Has our pursuit of wealth, prestige, power, success, and pleasure become the most important pursuit and goal of our lives? This question is quintessential to the spiritual life. It is so easy to deceive ourselves in this regard, is it not? Maybe one way to examine the priorities in our lives is to reflect on the way we use our discretionary time. If idols have, in fact, crept into our lives, we need to hear and heed Paul's admission again and again. Come forth from them and be separate. Remember that the word holiness is best translated as what? Set apart. To be set apart. To be set apart from what? The world, my friends the secular world that wishes to weigh us down, the secular world that wishes to say, you are the ultimate arbiter of salvation, not God. The secular world that wishes to place all of these things before us. And oh, how easy it is for all of us, mea culpa, to get caught up in things. But brothers and sisters, holiness is not about a thing. It is about a person, a person that informs how to handle things. Because as St. John Paul II reminds us, we are not made to love things and use people, but love people and use things. Let us be challenged by St. Paul this evening and adhere to this call to be holy, to be set apart, and to rid ourselves of those things that we have put before God, those strange gods, right? Those strange gods. All right. I promised you that we would get into how to best interpret Scripture. So let us do that now. The senses of Scripture. Now, because the Bible has both divine and human authors, we are required to master a different sort of reading than we are used to, right? First, we must read Scripture according to its what we call literal sense, as we read any other human literature. At this initial stage, what are we doing? But striving to discover the meaning of the words and expressions used by the biblical writers as they were understood in their original setting and by their original recipients. Huh? This means what? Well, among other things, that we do not interpret everything literally. But what do you mean, Joe? This is the literal sense. Well, <laughs> what does the literal sense convey? Does not the literal sense of sacred scripture, how the text is written, actually speak to the way in which some of the text is figurative or symbolic, huh? We are always made to read sacred scripture according to the rules that govern its different literary forms of writing, right? For example, if it's a narrative, a poem, a letter, a parable, an apocalyptic vision— Whatever kind of literature form it may be, we read it accordingly. The church calls us to read the divine books in this way. Why? 
so as to ensure that we understand what the human authors were laboring to explain to God's people. The literal sense, however, is not the only sense of sacred scripture, since we interpret its sacred pages according to the spiritual senses as well. And this is all drawn out in the Catechism. If you were to go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 101 to 130, you'll read about the literal and the spiritual sense. So, reading the text in the light of the spiritual sense, we search out what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us, huh? Beyond even what the human authors have consciously asserted. Whereas the literal sense of Scripture describes a historical reality, a fact, a precept, or event, the spiritual sense disclose deeper mysteries revealed through the historical realities. We could say what the soul is to the body, the spiritual senses are to the literal. You can distinguish them, but if you try to separate them, death immediately follows. The famous theologian von Balthasar once said that if you treat the Word of God exclusively in the literal sense, then you are treating the Word of God as a dead corpse. And why is that problematic? Well, because you and I both know the Word of God is living. Was not St. Paul the first to insist upon what we are talking about now and warn of its consequences? What do we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6? God has qualified us to be ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code, but in the Spirit, for the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. So in Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth, chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, he's very much speaking to the literal sense and the spiritual sense. And again, what we find in the Catechism recognizes three spiritual senses that stand upon the foundation of the literal sense, huh? The first is what we call the allegorical sense. It unveils the spiritual and prophetic meaning of biblical history. Allegorical interpretations thus reveal what, but how persons, events, and institutions of sacred scripture can point beyond themselves towards greater mysteries yet to come, or even display the fruits of mysteries already revealed, When you hear the word allegory, what do you think of? Maybe you think of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Why? Because an allegory is the description of one thing under the image of another. And what the likes of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were wanting to do, essentially by using figures and images, is convey the story of Christ. They were using one thing so as to point to another thing. This is why Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia are great allegories of the Christian mystery. So again, allegory, the description of one thing under the image of another. Now, Christians have often read the Old Testament in this way to discover how the mystery of Christ himself in the New Covenant was once hidden in the Old, and how the full significance of the Old Covenant was finally made manifest in the New. That essentially is St. Augustine. Allegorical significance is likewise latent in the New Testament, especially when you start to get into the life and deeds of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. I mean, because Christ is the head of the church and the source of her spiritual life, what was accomplished in Christ, the head during his earthly life, prefigures what he continually produces in his members through grace. The allegorical sense, my friends, 
builds up the virtue of faith. Builds up the virtue of faith. Okay, how about the second sense? Well, the second sense is what we call the moral sense. It reveals how the actions of God's people in the Old Testament and the life of Jesus in the New Testament prompt us, you and I, to form virtuous habits in our own lives. The moral sense is about going to sacred scripture and asking the question, what does this have to do with my personal journey of faith? And ultimately, how does it call me to be a better and stronger Christian? So the moral sense then draws from scripture warnings against sin and vice, as well as inspirations to pursue what? Well, what is our foundational call? What is our foundational vocation but holiness and purity? Okay, how about this third sense? Now, stay with me here, because this third sense, I think, for some people can get a bit tricky. The third sense is what's called the anagogical sense. Anagogical is just simply a word that speaks to the future. So the anagogical sense points towards what? Upward. Upward to heavenly glory. What awaits us? It shows us how countless events in the Bible prefigure our final union with God in eternity and how things that are seen on earth are only figures of things unseen in heaven. Okay, this is what the anagogical sense is about. In many ways, the anagogical sense dovetails beautifully the moral sense because in the light of both of them, we're reminded that we are to live with the end in mind, huh? The moral sense challenges us to live with the end in mind, and the anagogical sense, the sense that has us constantly thinking about the end, well, should have us living with the end in mind. And so, because the anagogical sense leads us to contemplate our destiny, what virtue does it build up? But the virtue of hope. So, together with the literal sense, then these spiritual senses draw out the fullness of what God wants to give us through His Word, and as such, comprise what the ancient Christian church would call the full sense of sacred Scripture. And all of this means, my friends, that the deeds and events of the Bible are charged with meaning beyond what is immediately apparent to the reader. In essence, that meaning is what? But Jesus Christ and the salvation He died to give us. It is the Bible's divine author, the Holy Spirit, who could and did foretell the saving work of Christ. So the New Testament did not abolish the Old Testament. Rather, the New Testament fulfilled the Old Testament, and in so doing, it lifted the veil that was kept hidden for so long. And once the veil was removed, suddenly we see the world of the old covenant charged with grandeur. What do we intend to mean there when we speak to this grandeur? Well, <laughs> that water, fire, clouds, gardens, trees, hills, doves, lambs, all of these things are memorable details in the history and poetry of Israel. But now, seen in the light of Christ, have new meaning, powerful meaning sacramental meaning. And this way we are made to interpret sacred Scripture spiritually, because the spiritual reading of Scripture is nothing new. 
Again, the very first Christians read the Bible this way. What did St. Paul say in Romans chapter 5, verse 14? Did he not describe Adam as a type that prefigured Christ? What is a type? Well, what does the word mean? It comes from the Greek typos, which means pattern or impression. I like to go to the image of a typewriter where that still letter will impress itself upon the canvas and leave a what? Pattern. Figures in old covenant history have left an impression in salvation history. A pattern pointing towards what? Well, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So a type is a real person, a real place, a real thing, or a real event in the Old Testament that foreshadows something greater in the new. And this is where we get the word typology that we have spoken to so much about, the study of types, the study of how the Old Testament prefigures Christ. If you were to turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 24, St. Paul draws deeper meaning out of Abraham's sons, declaring what this is in allegory. He is not suggesting that these events of the distant past never really happened. He is saying that the events both happened and signified something more glorious yet to come. Huh? The New Testament later describes the tabernacle of ancient Israel as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5. And how about just verses later in chapter 10, verse 1, where the author of Hebrews says the Mosaic law is a shadow of the good things to come. How about St. Peter? He notes that Noah and his family were saved through water in a way that corresponds with what? Sacramental baptism, which now saves you. 1 Peter 3, verses 20 to 21. Interestingly, the expression that is translated in this verse corresponds is a Greek term that denotes the fulfillment or counterpart of an ancient type. We need not look to the apostles themselves to justify a spiritual reading of the Bible. After all, did not Jesus himself read the Old Testament this way? What did Jesus call himself? A new Jonah, a new Solomon, and in John 2 verse 19, a new temple? Did he not speak to the brazen serpent? as a sign that pointed forward to him. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he speaks to how he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacred scriptures. My dear friends, Jesus Christ interprets the Bible in this way. And how beautiful is that? Because it is only when we begin to understand the old in light of the new and the new in light of the old that we can even begin to understand how God has worked in salvation history. I mean, how many books are in the Bible? 73? There's 46 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. If there's 46 books in the Old Testament, then book 47 would be what? The Gospel of Matthew, right? How many of you, when reading a book, start with chapter 47? No, you don't do that. No one does that. They start with chapter 1. And so by the time you get to chapter 47, you know what's going on. I mean, consider. Matthew opens up his Gospel with this verse, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Now, how can you possibly begin to appreciate what Matthew was trying to do if you don't know the story of Abraham or if you don't know the story of David? Again, this is part of the literal sense and at once the spiritual sense. So you read the whole one verse 
in its surrounding context, <laughs> one chapter in its surrounding book, one book in its whole, the 73 books, okay? This is what reading sacred scripture is all about. Now, before we jump into anything else, we do not have the right to just pick up the Bible and take a verse and apply it in a careless or imprudent way. The Ignatius Study Bible reminds us of the memorable cartoon from the 1950s that shows a, a young man pouring over the pages of the Bible. And he says to his sister, and pay close attention to this, have you ever done this before? Don't bother me now. I'm trying to find a scripture verse to back up one of my preconceived notions. Huh? <laughs> have you ever done that before? Twisted a verse to prove your point, to justify a preconceived notion. I think maybe we've all done that at least once. At least I know I have. Mea culpa. We have to use the senses of Scripture and the tools before us so as, again, to read sacred Scripture appropriately. Mindful that for 2,000 years, saints and doctors of the church, authoritative figures and interpreters of sacred Scripture, give us much insight into what we are talking about, huh? And so this is why I pull from commentaries. This is why I try to read feverishly as much as I can in the light of you know, praying with the text so as to bring to you as much as I can without, of course, being too much of a fire hose. <laughs> but anyhow, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening from which to reflect with your goodness and how you call us to better understand this goodness as you call us to be sound interpreters of sacred scripture. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.